one of my favorite things about the people who make up the community within our church are the differing religious or faith backgrounds that everyone has. Our non-denominational church is made up of people who grew up Catholic and Lutheran and Pentecostal and Evangelical, and that's just the name of few. But I just love the rich diversity in different backgrounds within our church. And that's not to say that everybody who comes to our church grew up in or around the Christian church, because they didn't. Some people grew up in households uh, with little to no belief in God. Others grew up in more of an agnostic household in which there's probably some sort of divine entity out there, but what is it and can we know it? Well, we don't know. And still there are others in our church who grew up Hindu or uh, in a Buddhist household, believing that there were either multiple gods or multiple paths to paradise. There's a lot going on in our church, and I love it. When we do our core courses, these are new to our church, but they're classes in which we talk about the strategy of our church to help people grow spiritually, gather together, and give back. It's part of our mission to connect people with God and each other. But when we do these courses, uh, I ask people to introduce themselves by telling us their name, how they found our church, and their faith background. And I love the answers to this question because there's so many differences. And at the same time, there are commonalities where there are multiple people who grew up Catholic or there are multiple people who grew up in a Pentecostal home. But we've all found ourselves here at Madison Church. Despite our different upbringings and our different backgrounds, we come together because of Jesus. But this begs the question, with all of our different understandings, beliefs, and backgrounds, we have to ask the question, who is Jesus? My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor at Madison Church, and I'm so glad that you are joining us today. If it's your first time, a special welcome to you. We are glad that you are here. We're in part two of a series we just started last week called Finding My Faith, and we're going through the first four chapters of the epistle to the Hebrews. And in these first few chapters of this New Testament letter, our author uh, addresses a ton of topics that when misunderstood, and these topics are often misunderstood, they drive people away from faith. When we misunderstand things like, why is God silent in this time? Why didn't God answer my prayer? It can make people lose their faith. But the author addresses it and helps us to have a proper understanding. When we have a proper understanding of these questions, we don't lose our faith, but quite the opposite, we find it. So last week we talked about, does God speak today? In a couple more weeks, we're going to talk about why does God be silent sometimes? Why is God silent at other times? Can we have assurance in God even when he's not speaking to us? And today we're going to explore the question, who is Jesus? Now, most modern scholars uh, who study history will Uh, agree that Jesus was a real person. He was a real person. He lived at a real time. Um, But there are plenty of other questions surrounding his identity. It's not just a matter of was Jesus alive, but it was, it is, who is Jesus? And is he who he says he is? And what do people say about him? Is Jesus just another Jewish preacher uh, from that era? 
Is he just a religious leader coming out of the Greco-Roman world that had lots of religious leaders? Or is Jesus what many Christians believe the incarnation of God? Is Jesus divine? And these are just some of the questions surrounding Jesus's identity that have dominated discussion over him for the past 2000 years. And so if you want to follow along, we're going to Hebrews chapter one, verse five, Hebrews is toward the end of your new Testament's first chapters, the first chapter and verse five. And one of the things I'd like you to notice before we begin reading the passage is how the author who is going to be quoting the Psalms. So when we're reading this passage and you see quotes come up, uh, they are quoting the Psalms. But notice that when they quote the Psalms, it's not obvious because they're not stating that they're quoting the Psalms. They don't say Psalm 2-7 says this. Rather, what we're going to see is that the author says, God said this. Do you remember when God said that? And it goes back to what we talked about last week. And if you missed it, don't worry. Um, One of the things we talked about was how God speaks to us today is through the Old and New Testaments. The author of Hebrews said that God spoke through people long ago in collections of writings that are compiled today in the Bible. Now, they're not just speculating anymore. They're actually putting this belief to practice when they say, God said this, referring to Psalm 2. Was Psalm 2 literally written by God? It wasn't. It was written by someone else. But the author understood that God spoke to someone who wrote this down, and it's God's way of speaking to us today. So beginning in verse 5 in Hebrews, God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. Regarding the angels, he says, he sends his angels like the winds, his servants like flames of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. He also says to the son in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. And God never said to any of the angels, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. So the very long passage, okay, first it's a long passage, but it all comes together. Let's break it down, starting with verse five. God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. So the first thing that we see when we're asking this question, who is Jesus? And and the author of Hebrews talking about it, they're saying that Jesus is the son of, of God, that Jesus is the son of God and God is Jesus's 
father. And this again, goes back to a little bit of what we talked about last week, the verses that come before what we're talking about today, which is that biblical writers, authors, and those living in the era back then really saw time and space in the two categories. There was the pre-Messiah, every time, everything before Jesus. And then after the Messiah, everything after Jesus. And we see that again, when the writer is talking about Jesus and he says, today, um, you become my son. If we're not careful, we could read that passage to think that, well, did God create Jesus? Okay, so Jesus hasn't always been around and therefore isn't God or he's a lesser God if he was created. But we have to go back into this idea that they believe that before Jesus, there was this era of time and then there's an era of time after Jesus. And so when the author says, today you will be my son, they're referring to this time, that there will be a time in which God enters time and space like never before in physical form. And that this person, this Messiah, this Jesus, isn't just a human, isn't just a boy, isn't just another kid, but that this Jesus is the son of God. It's not that he was created as we will see as we talk more about this passage, but we are seeing that one of the aspects of Jesus, when we're talking about who Jesus is, yes, human, but also the son of God. When we read this, um, this is a direct quote out of Psalm 2-7. And so when we're reading Psalm 2-7, when we're reading Psalm 2, we need to read it through the lens as we do with much of the Old Testament, as in, is this talking about Jesus? And this is a prophecy about Jesus uh, hundreds of years before Jesus came. And so when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the Son of God. This is his unique identity. We're talking a little bit, it's some of the first language we have about the Trinity, the Godhead, that we have uh, Father, Spirit, Son, three in one. And it is very difficult to understand, but these are some of those notes coming out that we see that um, Jesus is God, but that he's also the Son of God. So who is Jesus? Uh, The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus isn't just the Son of God, as I keep kind of pushing us forward here. Jesus is also God, and that becomes evident in the next passage when the author of Hebrews um, compares Jesus to other spiritual beings. Verse 6 and 7, when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of the angels worship him. Regarding the angels, he says, he sends his angels like winds, his servants like flames of fire. Well, right here, uh, the author of Hebrews doesn't say very much before he gets right back to it. And he says that Jesus is divine. Jesus is uh, the, not just the son of God, but he is God. And when Jesus enters into the world, the angels are instructed to worship Jesus. The angels are only ever instructed to worship God. The angels aren't to worship you or I. The angels aren't to worship creation or anything else in creation, but only to worship the creator. And so in this passage, the author of Hebrews says, yes, we have the son of God here, but don't get it twisted. Jesus isn't just the son of God, but Jesus is God. Now, I don't know about you, but this talk with angels and this passage talks about angels a lot. Um, what's the deal 
with these verses? I mean, this was a question that I had um, early on in my studies of this materials where I was preparing for this series. I was like, what is the deal with the angels? Why are there so many references to angels? It kind of intimidated me because it seemed like this was going to be hard to understand, which means it's going to be very hard to teach. But I'm relieved to tell you it's not hard to understand and it's easy to teach. Um, This is called the epistle to the Hebrews because it would have been read out loud. Yes, it's in a letter. It's a book in our New Testament. But at the time, in its original inception, when it was originally created, it would have been read out loud because the vast majority of the audience wasn't able to read. So whoever penned this letter, this epistle intended that it would be read out loud as a sermon, like what you and I are doing right now today, but 2000 years ago. And they would gather together like we do in our church gatherings. And someone who could read would read this letter out loud. And that society, the Jewish society had a very high view a high opinion of angels. Angels stood between people and God. They were intermediaries that they would communicate between God and humanity. When you think about the uh, story of Jesus's birth in Luke, we see that an angel comes to Mary and speaks to Mary. And we see that uh, an angel comes to Joseph and an angel tells Joseph, don't leave Mary. We see an angel comes to Elizabeth. An angel comes to uh, Zechariah. We see angels are communicating uh, on behalf of God to people. And so then in the introduction of what is supposed to be a read out loud sermon, this is his opening speech. He is trying to connect with the audience of a point of interest that he says, you guys are interested in angels and, and, and we have history with angels doing big things, but get this, Jesus is greater than the angels. That Jesus is greater than the spiritual beings that for a long time we've held the high view of. There was God and then there were angels. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, I don't want you to put Jesus on the same level as angels. Don't get it twisted. Again, he says that Jesus is God above the angels and the angels only worship the creator. And that is who Jesus is. And so what's the deal with all of the angels? Well, it's just interesting to that audience as it might be interesting to some of you guys as well. So they get into this church gathering and they're reading this out loud. They're hearing it and they're understanding that saying, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we're talking about, learning about, that we're worshiping? And the author of Hebrews states that Jesus is the son of God, but that Jesus is also God, greater than any other being in all of creation. So Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God. What's this God like? Continue to read Hebrews 1, 8. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and you hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. He also says to the Son in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you will remain forever. Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus is also God. And here the author establishes that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is eternal. He has always existed before time, before creation, before space, before anything. Jesus was there. But not just that, not just that Jesus is eternal and will live after everything else, but that Jesus has authority. 
We read that Jesus was the creator of the earth and the heavens. So Jesus has authority, but we also read that Jesus is Lord. Jesus loves justice. Jesus hates evil. And one of the things then as as followers of this Jesus is that we too in following our Lord and Messiah is that we ought to hate evil and love justice. That loving justice and hating evil is a central part of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he does. Now, in saying all of this, we've come to one of the greatest barriers people have of accepting faith. I mean, maybe you're watching right now and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're not sure what you believe. Um, Or perhaps you are a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus. But this is starting to get into the realm of where you become uncomfortable talking to other people about your faith. Why is that? Well, because in a word, exclusivity. We seem exclusive. When we say that Jesus isn't just a way, but we say that Jesus is the way, it can be seen in society as intolerant. It can be seen to the watching world that we are arrogant. It can be seen like we grasp a better truth or a truer truth than any of the other religions. And so I just want to acknowledge that um, I know that perception's out there and I, I get it. And I, I understand where it's coming from. Um, so let's talk about that. In multiple forums with um, religious thinkers, I mean, scholars, people who have devoted their whole lives to studying um, different faiths like Christianity and like Islam, um, these panels where they bring these experts in to have uh, conversations usually almost always agree to the following statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right about Jesus and that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then it is the Christians who fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. And so the experts of this stuff in very respectful dialogues come to this uh, agreement that there is a bit of an impasse here, that there is this point where we get where decisions have to be made. And they would say that if the Christians are right, if the Christians, the followers of Jesus are right, then Jesus is God. And by rejecting Jesus, we are rejecting God. You see how that's logical and it follows through. If we reject Jesus and Jesus is God, then we are rejecting God because God is Jesus and Jesus is God and we're rejecting Jesus. But then they would say, you know, if the Christians are wrong and and we're right, uh, then the Christians are just worshiping an idol. The work Christians are worshiping a prophet. The Christians are worshiping a teacher. And in that sense, we're not worshiping God because we've created a God out of Jesus. And I know that this is kind of like all up in the air maybe, and it doesn't very, very well seem relevant, but it is relevant because what we believe about Jesus impacts how we live. A lot has changed in societies over 2,000 years, but one of the things that hasn't changed is that we live in a pluralistic society, culture, and world. And what I mean by pluralistic is that um, within the city of Madison, within Dane County, within the state of Wisconsin, the United States, and the world, we have lots of people with lots of different religious faiths, beliefs, and understandings. So it's pluralistic. So there's a lot going on, right? But one of the things that has always defined 
Christians, even 2000 years ago in that pluralistic society is that as followers of Jesus, because we believe in, in Jesus's love, grace, and forgiveness, and that responsibility to pass on the love, grace, and forgiveness, our faith has always been lived out uniquely different. In the first few centuries, society despised poor people while followers of Jesus gave generously. And they gave generously to people in need, regardless of their background with faith. And in those times, women had a very low status in society. There was actually infant side, which is where they're killing the babies because they were born girls. And they didn't want girls. And the church offered women equality, leadership positions, places to teach. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is is, which is interesting, but it's speculated that a woman could have written it. And so we could be reading uh, the only book in the New Testament written by a woman. And that was one of the things that the church offered women. And during terrible plagues, followers of Jesus cared for the sick and dying in their cities, often at the cost of their own lives. And that's not to say that Christians get this right today, because I don't think that we do. I think that sometimes our reaction to COVID hasn't been like those Christians in the first century who were willing to um, sacrifice themselves for the good of the community. I don't know if we've been like that consistently as the church as a whole in the United States in the past year. We don't always treat women respectfully or lift them up into equal positions within the church. We live in a greedy society, We still, I think, in a lot of ways, despise the poor, and and we don't always give generously. But we do this. I mean, we should strive to do this. And here's kind of, let's end on this. People in other faiths believe that by listening to their God or their prophets or their, their books, and by leading a good life, they could somehow earn heaven. They could earn paradise. They could outdo all the bad that they do. We talk about um, in other faiths, something like karma, which, you know, if we do something bad, something bad's going to happen. So we want to do more good than we do bad. But Christianity teaches, teaches us the exact opposite. Christianity says, you guys can't do that. There's not enough good in the world for you to overcome all of the bad in the world. God doesn't tell us how to live in such a way that you and I can earn salvation. Jesus doesn't say, here's what you need to say and here's what you need to do to get into heaven, to earn my love. We're not accepted or loved by God because of what we say, think, or do. Rather, we are accepted and loved by God because of his love, grace, and forgiveness. And as such, we go into the world and we try to perpetuate that love, grace, and forgiveness into society. And that should affect how we talk about, how we think about, and what we do toward people who are poor, uh, women in our society, and people who are sick or ill or when we're living in a pandemic. And we don't do it because we're trying to earn better merit in heaven or with God, but we do it because we are trying to show the love of Jesus, our God, the son of God to people. And so when we're talking about our faith, we shouldn't be judgmental or hypocritical. We should just own the fact that none of us are good enough, which is why we needed Jesus and that Jesus makes us not good enough, but that Jesus makes us right. That Jesus makes us right with God. 
And so I understand the tension and the conflict of not wanting to share our faith because we don't want to seem arrogant. We don't want to seem intolerant, but what we have is actually very inclusive and very free because there is a Jesus who loves everybody because everybody is created in his image. Let us not forget that Jesus died on a cross for his enemies the very people who killed him and despised him. And as they were killing him, he prayed that God would forgive them. Let us live like that as a people who pray for our enemies, no matter how much we despise them. And not because we'll earn better spot in heaven, but because we want to perpetuate the love of Christ to other people. And since faith is not static, because God is not static, we are either walking toward Jesus or away from Jesus. And I hope and pray that today you will choose to walk toward Jesus.